You are listening to Changes Big and Small. This is Damian, your host, as we explore what makes change exhilarating. Each episode, we'll explore how you can create freedom in your life by embracing change. I intersperse interviews with research and challenges to help you make changes in your life. In this episode of Changes Big and Small, I chat with Avril Matsui. Born in the UK, Avril has lived in Japan for the past 26 years. We speak about race and prejudice and what it's like living as a black woman in Japan. As the mother of mixed race children, Avril is motivated to live her purpose to inspire her children and help them build strong identities. She speaks passionately about her work teaching about social justice issues at a university and about finding her purpose as a coach. Listen to this episode to learn some great strategies for finding your purpose and making positive changes in your life. Avril inspires us with questions that we can ask to help us make sure that we are living full lives in our integrity. Be sure to visit the show notes at changesbigandsmall.com for all the links mentioned in the episode. Let's get started. I'll let you introduce yourself if you could tell us where were you born and where do you live now? Goodness, you didn't prepare me for that question. Let's see. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) My name is Avril and I'm originally from England. I grew up in the middle of England in Nottingham and went to university in Sheffield and then once university finished I came to Japan and I've never left. (laughs) Wow so how long have you been in Japan now? My goodness now everybody will know how old I am. Hey give us a range 10 to 20 years (laughs) 20 to 50. (laughs) I really don't mind I'm happy to tell everyone that I'm going to be 50 this year so let's see so about 20 goodness five Goodness, no, it's more than 25 years, about 26 years. What prompted you to move to Japan after university? Poverty, desperation. (laughs) (laughs) I know, but there is a whole world out there. Why Japan? It seems to be by accident. I wanted to work in the public sector. That was my degree. I wanted to be a civil servant, a hospital manager. I had no idea what I was thinking. My course was four years and the third year of my course was a job placement, right? And I went to work in a hospital in the north of England for a year and it was the worst year of my life. (laughs) I hated it. (laughs) It's good to find out right away. (laughs) But I really wish I had known that before I started the degree. (laughs) There are so many jobs within the public sector, I know that, but that hospital management Public sector management had been my goal, but I didn't like it at all. And uh, a friend of mine and her boyfriend were applying for the JET program, the Japan Exchange and Teaching Program. You come and you be an assistant in a Japanese high school and elementary school now. She said, you know, they need people who are kind of lively and loud. I was like, okay, it's a veiled compliment, but I'll take it. So (laughs) you should apply. And so I did. And uh, yeah, I got it. And I, nobody was more shocked than me. What I know about the JET program is that usually you end up in quite, you don't end up in Tokyo, for example. Where were you placed? Well, to be honest, I didn't want to go to a big city. 
I didn't really want to go to a smaller city as I went. I didn't even go to a city. I went to a very, very small town. And town is using the word loosely, right? In the middle of Nagano, in the mountains, a place called Matsukawa. Really tiny, less than 10,000 people spread out all over the mountain. And I worked at junior high school there. But I loved it. Were there other English speakers around? Were there other foreigners? Well, there were some English speakers, the, the teachers at my high school. I mean, it's a really, really small town and all the towns and villages are kind of close together. So it's like one train station was one town, next train station was another town. And there were other AUTs, assistant English teachers in those towns. So we would meet up sometimes at the weekend. But really, everyone in that community, they were just so good to me. And I know that they had never seen anyone like me before because they told me that. <laughs> never seen a black person before. I've never talked to a black person. I went to this festival, which is even deeper in the mountains than my town. And I'd been in Japan maybe for about two months. And this older man came up to me and he said, in English, he said, excuse me, can I, could I shake your hand? And I was like, okay. <laughs> and he shook my hand. And then he said, I've never seen a black person before I've never touched a black person before thank you so much you know like, okay cool no problem <laughs> you'd like me to sign something <laughs> so those three years I spent three years in Nagano and I really became part of the community and people were just very open and I presume that everybody would be <laughs> we'll get to that yeah. did you learn Japanese while you were there I did. I didn't study as much as I should have. And even today, I still wish I had studied a lot more than I have. But it's interesting, when I complain about things, my Japanese is always better. I can have conversations. I'm verbally fine. Writing is a little bit different. What happened next? I moved to a big city. I started working at an English conversation school, and I realized that Nagoya was really the gravy train. <laughs> I had a house to myself I didn't really have to pay for. People were so kind. When I was sick, people would come and bring me food. And I didn't have to work that much. <laughs> that sounds awful. I worked teaching hours and then I had quite long holidays. But really, I think the English conversation schools, it was more of a factory production type of mentality. Just then teachers out as many classes as possible squeezed into one day and contracts that were officially 29.5 hours. And that was a teaching time, not preparation time. And the reason they keep it and still do now, actually, 29.5 hours is because to go over 30, they would have to pay health insurance and pension. I mean, it wasn't all bad. I mean, obviously, I, I met some really great people and had some interesting experiences there. And I also learned a lot about, you know, teaching English as a foreign language. So you first did JET and then you moved to Nagoya. Did you decide at any point that you were going to stay in Japan or did it just happen? Oh, no, I was adamant that I was not going to stay in Japan. <laughs> I was just sort of saving for grad school, I suppose. wanted to do a master's. And then I just kept traveling, I suppose, and spending money. So I'd have to stay another year and save it. Then there were a few sort of issues in my family, which meant I had to help out financially. So that kept me here a little bit longer. But I really hadn't intended on staying any longer than 
another five years after the JET program. I also met my husband. I was going to say, what changed that? I mean, when I met him, I said, you know, you're great in everything. But number one, I'm not staying in Japan. And number two, I don't want to marry a Japanese guy. And he stuck around. <laughs> he was like, okay, okay. Where did the resistance come from? Because I had these very strong stereotypes about Japanese men, which I was really wrong about. What were those concerns that you had? It wasn't just I didn't want to marry a Japanese guy. I didn't want to marry anybody that was not English. I wanted to marry an English person. And I specifically wanted to marry an English black guy or an Asian guy because I felt that we would be able to understand each other better because we had the same upbringing, brought up as minorities within the UK. I think it was more that. I did have some negative stereotypes about Japanese men, which it's not just him that has proved me wrong, but there are many people that have proved me so wrong. You know, when you're young, you think you know everything. And I really thought, you know, I'm going back to England and I'll meet my partner there. That was what I thought. In what other ways has Japan surprised you or living in Japan surprised you? I really, really enjoy my job. That's great. (laughs) Yeah. And I didn't... I expect that once I finished working in the English conversation industry, I went to work at a private high school and that gave me time to complete my master's. And then I moved into university teaching and into full-time positions. And that's where I came to this point of being able to teach exactly what I wanted in the way that I want. And I have to admit to myself, I like getting people in a room and holding them captive. (laughs) They have to listen to me and they can't escape, you know? And what do you teach? Even now it's even better because in this position, I really don't teach, you know, English conversation. We don't do the four skills or anything like that. I teach about gender and diversity and stereotypes and prejudice. And I just love it. And I also teach about community action and social activism. And students have to go out and do their own projects within the community and then come back and report about it in English. Other people can't see you, but you just light up when you're talking about the work that you do. (laughs) I really like it. And I think as well, it just seemed, I think once we got married and had children, it just seemed that Japan at that point was just a safer place to bring up our kids. Things that were available, the resources that were available to me, you know, like childcare and just being able to go to the doctors and things. And it was better. Getting pregnant and having kids here was really good. Over the years, you've changed your work and you've lived in Nagoya most of the time. What kind of challenges have you had to overcome to get to this wonderful place you are right now? Well, there's always going to be some kind of challenge. But I think that part of the reason I am here is because I am starting to speak out a little bit more about sort of social justice issues in terms of discrimination, especially as it relates to gender and race. So the challenges for me, I think, is that in Japan, you're always an outsider. It doesn't matter how long you live here or how good your Japanese is or whether or not my last name is Japanese, always an outsider. And that can become quite tiresome. On the one hand, I do think that people in Japan are becoming so much more open-minded. People are traveling learning other languages besides English as well. Other nationalities are coming here and there's lots more intermarriage on the one hand. And I can see that in my students, especially this younger generation. But then when I get on a train, 
and nobody wants to sit next to me, <laughs> I can see that we've still got a, a long way to go. The biggest challenge, actually, I think I face here is the way that people will react to you as a foreigner. Now, on a train, it's annoying and kind of embarrassing, but it's not terribly detrimental. But if I go to a hospital and somebody will not communicate with me in the same way as they would with a Japanese person, then that's a problem, right? Especially if I'm there with my kids and I'm there for my kids and I just become like, you know, mama bear and say, right, I don't want to talk to you. I want to talk to the person in charge, you know. Then they start to realize, okay, she speaks Japanese and she's quite scary, so we should probably listen to her more. That can be an issue. So actually going to new places, new situations, a new teacher for my kids or going to a hospital or just people treating you always in a different way until they get to know you. So it's like you have to prove yourself over and over and over again. Yeah, and that can become very tiresome. How do you deal with this? What's your approach besides scary mama bear? I think a lot of the coaching work that I'm doing now, which is my other thing, you know, a lot of this work, of course, I had to do it myself first, this sort of self-development and this self-trust and this sort of attracting and bringing in the right people and the right kind of connections, going back into my past and understanding why certain situations triggered me more than others. So I've done like a lot of work on myself and I know that sounds really naff, but it's really changed my life. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is that I have a real commitment to community. I'm all about creating groups and communities that we get like that support. So the Black Women in Japan group was one of those. And the Women's Empowerment Group, which is part of my coaching, is another one. So I think community is so important. And I remember growing up in England, we had quite a strong like, Jamaican community around us, my parents. And then, you know, of course, there were other nationalities or ethnicities in that group too. But we've always sort of gone to the community for support. And I want to create that here as much as I can for me and for my kids and for the people around me. Share with us about your Black Women in Japan group. What does it look like? What do you do? I can't take sole credit for this. A friend of mine, Stephanie Gale, we both started the Facebook group together. And it was like, where are all the Black Women in Japan? We know they're here somewhere. And so we started this Facebook group. Now there are over 3,000 women in this Facebook group. And the next step, of course, was to get women together. So now I have this wonderful group of women who are moderating the Facebook group. But we also have a committee of women who organize a convention every year. Well, except for this year because of the Olympics and Corona. But every year for the last three years, we have this annual meeting and we bring everyone together and it's just great we have workshops we have dancing of course people are selling jewelry getting advice about life about hair about personal development about business it's a community and also on a district level we have people meeting up in Okinawa people meeting up in Fukuoka which is the south of Japan and even in Hokkaido we have district reps who are kind of bringing people together why was it important to you to create this group? You talked a bit about community and the importance of community. Why did you decide to go this route? I was thinking of being the only black woman for miles around or one of few. And also, I think that as a foreigner in Japan, especially an English-speaking foreigner, 
there are many similarities to the way that we are all treated, okay? But the difference is that coming from England, I have my white friends who are being treated in a certain way in Japan. But then you may also find that you still have to deal with the same microaggressions with this particular group of white teachers in a language school, not everybody, of course. So you're dealing with microaggressions within Japanese society and then dealing with microaggressions within your school. And then there's the whole gender issue as well. So it's just, it's different for us. And I felt that we needed a safe place, a safe space to go to. Of course, we all have these wonderful friends who of any phenotype who are going to listen to us. But sometimes you just need somebody who understands right. and can see it from your perspective and will know when you're maybe you're going a little bit too overboard or too much the other way. It's kind of a check-in, like, am I imagining this? Am I crazy? Is this happening to you too? Yeah. I think all of that can sometimes help with sanity or establishing where you are. Because sometimes we're unrealistic yes. with our expectations, our behavior. Yeah. But a lot of the time, there are things happening that we can't just dig our heads in the sand, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Let's look at the other side. Clearly, you have had some challenges, but you're living in a place that you also love, doing a job that you love as well. What do you enjoy about living in Japan? Food. <laughs> to be honest, you know, Damien, I've been here for so long. That I very rarely think, unless we travel somewhere, that, oh, I'm in Japan, because to me, this is just my home. I have my house, my family is here, you know, I pay my mortgage here. This is just where I live. When I travel outside of my area, I think the things that I love are that I know that for the most part, not, not always, but my kids could wander away and get lost and someone's going to bring them back. I know that. Plus, you know, you can't miss them anyways. <laughs> they can get lost. And trains run on time. You know, there's that sort of respect for the environment and for people around you that I don't always see when I go back to England. The politeness... And I think perhaps, I don't know if it's Japan or just the fact of having left one's home country, maybe you feel the same. I feel like I wouldn't have developed in the same way. Also, I wouldn't be aware that I'm still developing, you know, from now. I just think my life would have been a lot different and a lot more negative had I stayed in the UK. That may not be the case, but that's just how I feel. It sounds like that initial change to Japan was one of the major contributors to the life that yeah. you live now. That's almost redundant, of no, course. No, no, I know what you mean. When I left university, I really thought I was stupid, which sounds like an oxymoron. <laughs> But I really had no confidence in myself and in what I could do and very little belief in myself. You know, I always look to others to kind of validate me. Am I doing this right? Tell me what to do with my life. You know? And again, it goes back to doing work on oneself as well. But when I was at university, I never thought that I was the kind of person that would you know, leave my home forever and create a life somewhere else. And I think confidence is the main thing. And even now, if I think about going back to England, I think, well, I could go back and I could create a life for myself because I've done this once already, even at my age, I feel confident that I could probably do that anywhere. What have you learned about change from the big changes that you did make? It sounds like you've become adaptable. 
And that's the thing about change is like we're always changing, right? You know, especially as adults, just as beings, we're always on the move somehow. Even if you feel like you're in the same place, you're always kind of developing and evolving. And I think that's an exciting thing. People often feel that they're stuck. They're not stuck. We always, always have a choice. It's hard to believe that, but we always have that choice and we're always kind of reframing things and seeing it from different perspectives. But you kind of have to have an open mind to be able to do that. Just think that if I had stayed in England, I wouldn't have met the people or had the experiences that inspired me to have that sort of mindset. Recently, you started working as a coach to yeah. help women heal and find their purpose in life. What motivated you to start this? Again, you know, we teach what we need, right? <laughs> we teach what we need. I knew that there were things in my past that I just had not dealt with and put in a cupboard. And I couldn't understand why when I had a lovely husband and, you know, two gorgeous, gorgeous children. They're really gorgeous, gorgeous children. And they are. No. <laughs> Was I still struggling with like this intense feeling of sadness or unworthiness or just lack of confidence in things? You know, where did that come from? Or just this sense of dissatisfaction? First of all, I went to a counsellor and she was great, but I needed something that was sort of more purpose driven that would push me to get stuff done compassionately. And uh, so I started working with this coach and going through this, this process, and it just really opened my heart and mind in ways I just never imagined and I kept talking to people about it you know <laughs> boring them with it going you know you really should try it you really should try it and then people kept saying you know you seem like you're into this and you have a handle on it why don't you teach it? and I was like oh no I can never do that I'm just not ready and then finally my coach said you know I have a sort of a teaching qualification that you can take and then when you're ready you can go into coaching and I realized that there was just this need to get women together and there's need to provide this really safe space especially for the English speakers in this area you need this safe space to come and to really think about what do you want out of life why do you want it and the problem is that and I know it's the same anywhere but you go to work you go home you go to work you go home you may study but you get into this little treadmill and we're not really thinking about anything else that the things we get done and we just get depleted and anxious and tired and irritable we can't understand why and you become quite disconnected with yourself disconnected with your spirituality with your body with your emotions because you know women are always supposed to be happy and pleasant but you just become really disconnected and i wanted to help women reconnect with those things that they wanted the places they went, their relationships, their purpose, their careers. You know, let's get together and let's connect. And I will be the person that kind of pushes you like someone has kind of pushed me. I love teaching. I really do. But this is my purpose. This is my purpose. This is why I was born, I think. <laughs> and why I've had all these experiences. And the way it's happened has been really organic as well. You know, I'm not a big person online you know I'm rubbish with computers but although I'm trying to change that it's one of my blocks trying to change that I just started a group and said okay you now we're going to have this meeting on this day why don't you come along and I kind of expected maybe three or four women to come most of them my closest friends 22 women turned up and ever since then it's always been like 
groups from 15 to 20. Sometimes, you know, we had a small group, but then it goes back up again. And people tell me, you know, thank you so much for providing this because we just need this, especially when it comes to talking about your emotions and anxieties. I think, especially in Japan, as foreign women, we're constantly on guard. Put mask on, leave house, because... There's this feeling that everyone is judging you and looking at you all the time. If you slip up, not only are you discrediting yourself, but you're discrediting all foreign women, all black women, or all English speakers. It's a huge, huge, heavy feeling. And the truth is, we don't really have to carry that. We don't. We only need to be responsible for ourselves. How often do you have these sessions? Well, every month, and I just finished a two-day retreat in Nagano. Let's always go back to Nagano. That was on like limiting beliefs, where they come from and how to discover them and how to shift them. And the next workshop will be in April. So that'll be April, May, June, and then I'll have another retreat in July. What does it feel like to know that you're in your purpose? It's really liberating. It's really liberating because I think when I was young, I was, you know, just kind of splashing around going, what can I do? What can I do? I've got to do something, got to do something without ever really connecting with what I really wanted to do. I know now I had to have that because now I can help people who are indecisive and lacking their purpose because I went through that. But to know that is just really comforting. I don't know what exactly what, no, that's not true. I do know what shape I want it to take. I don't know what the future may bring, but I do know that I'm going to be doing this. I may still be teaching. When I retire, I'll be doing this full time or maybe even before that, I don't know. But it feels really comforting and it feels like life is going to kind of throw certain curveballs at us. Okay, okay, this is what it feels like. This is what it feels like. It's like life can be difficult and hard and all those things sometimes you know we lose people we lose jobs we lose money we become very afraid now I know that I can cope with anything that comes I know that I didn't have that before I was always scared and nervous and it doesn't mean I'm not going to be sad about losing a loved one or my mum getting older and infirm those are things are sad but I know that I will not be destroyed by that as I'm the spiritual perspective, I'm supported by my higher levels. I've done a lot of work on my past. I'm hooked into my emotions. So yeah, it's, it's comforting to know that. How has this work changed your daily practice or has it changed your daily practice? Oh, it's changed my daily practice a lot. You know, I get up in the morning and I spend a bit of time in kind of prayer and meditation. And it's short, just like five minutes because, you know, it is the morning and I haven't had my coffee yet, so I need to move things along. <laughs> and then I may journal for five minutes, just the feelings in my body and my emotions. Because a lot of what I teach and what I was taught by my mentor and coach, Tanya Penny, is the mind-body connection. It's sort of mind-body healing. Right, so every symptom within your body is sending you a message. Every emotion that you have is sending you a message. They're not good, they're not bad. You know, it's just this message. And when you kind of focus on them, you can start to understand what that message is. You know, there are so many things in our bodies that we ignore, right? Like stiff neck and shoulders. Oh, I'm just always like that. But yeah, maybe you're like that because you're 
overwhelmed and you're just taking too much on. Or I have this kind of stomach ache, maybe you're a little angry about something that happened in the past and you haven't released it, or it's something that happened, you know, yesterday and you haven't released it. So I go back to your question anyway. So there's that. And then I come to work and do my thing. I make a bit of time every day to do a guided meditation, just a short one again, 15 minutes. I did it before this call because my little inner critic voice came in saying, oh my gosh, you know, what if I'm boring? It's not interesting, you know. And then I did this meditation and I felt the support of my high levels and I kind of went in focused on self-trust because I can only be me. <laughs> And that's all I need to be, right? So I was reminded of that. And then I'll go home and, you know, do the mum thing. And I, again, will journal before I go to bed. And again, short times. But what's interesting is I have not forced my family to do any of this at all. No, I'll talk about what I'm doing. My daughter likes to fall asleep with a guided meditation every night. She's 10. And my husband has kind of started reading, you know, these sort of self-help books about emotional intelligence and things and it's kind of spreading. That's interesting. Thinking about being something, being somebody changes you in ways that has an effect on other people in your environment. I guess that's why they say you're the average of the people you spend time with. Maybe that's same in family. So if you elevate your level yes the average raises for everyone right absolutely i love that i love that it's like this little ripple you know (laughs) yes and that's kind of cool i mean they teach me things too all the time and i think that's one of my motivations as well to do this work for myself is because i want to be a better parent i'm raising mixed race kids in japan and I want them to have that strength, that inner strength and that certainty of knowing who they are and that they are loved no matter what happens. And I don't want them to feel that they are less than because they're different to those people around. And they belong. (laughs) They belong wherever they go. That's it. Ever. I want them to know that. That's the kind of motivation for me. The response I've gotten from the women who've come to the workshops and the retreat has been really great. I'm really grateful for them. I liked how you shared that you did a meditation right before to kind of help yourself get grounded, to help you get back into what you know to be true. Yeah, yeah. What advice would you have for people who have those same types of struggles, who always have those niggling doubts, who feel like an imposter at different times? Oh, goodness, yes. Yes, that's a big one. Gosh, I mean, there's so many different pieces to it. So first of all, I would suggest people start journaling. Everyone hates when I say that. But I think everyone's idea of writing things down, journaling is going to be pages and pages and pages, and it does. And sometimes it has to be you know, specific words of how you're feeling and how you want to feel. Okay, that's number one. And then just kind of take time to go inside yourself sometimes and ask yourself those questions. How am I feeling? Why am I feeling this way? And don't judge the answer. Like, I'm feeling, you know, this or that. Don't don't judge the answer because we are our own worst critics, right? You're just acknowledging that you have these feelings and you have these emotions. And then you ask, what are these feelings and emotions trying to tell me? Now, if you're out and about and you get a little bit 
triggered by some things and one pushes you, you know, makes you angry and you have got 10 minutes, do a quick guided meditation. But they have to be, well, I say, they have to be the one. I'm not trying to plug my services. But, you know, I do specific meditations that are personalized for specific life areas and personalized for the specific person. And it deals with the emotions and the feelings that they're having. One thing that you can also do in the moment when you have that negative thought or a critical thought, like I'm stupid or I hate that person, actively do a thought shift. And not in a way that you're telling yourself off, like, oh, God, you shouldn't have said that. That's terrible. But just in a way of, okay, I acknowledge that thought. And now I'm going to think something that's more positive. I'm not stupid. The truth is I'm very intelligent. I'm amazing. Okay, just within that moment. And the other thing is just to understand that it's a process. It's not going to happen overnight. You're not going to stop criticizing yourself overnight or know what your purpose and career should be overnight or get out of a bad relationship overnight. But you want to start the process. Start doing those things that will help you to move to the other side. So if you're planning to leave a relationship and you're finding it very difficult, then take that first step. Maybe it's to talk with your partner or maybe it's to write out exactly what you want. If you can't decide what you want in a career and you're not sure if you should go or you should stay, this is something that is great to journal on like first thing in the morning because you know our mind often knows what to do when we wake up because it's been uninterfered with for seven or eight hours. So start journaling. What do I want? Why do I want this? Because often what we want is more to do with what other people want, right, than what we want. It's more to do with what, you know, our parents or society or, you know, what we think we should be doing. It all gets conflated. Exactly. You know, we haven't gone inside to kind of just work out what do I want? What do I like? You know, what are the things that bring me joy? And then out of that, your purpose will come to you. Again, not overnight. You know, there's no quick fixes, right, in these things, sadly. How do you move from thinking about it? Because, for example, you thought initially when it came to coaching, I'm not ready. How do you get ready? How do you move from thinking to doing? So first of all, I had to work on my sense of kind of self-worth and my belief in myself I had to shift that mindset using journaling and meditation because I really just didn't think I was good enough. And that's the thing. Most people think they're not good enough to do the things that they would like to do or even to try them. And that is also a process in itself. You've got to go back and work out where did that belief come from that I'm not good enough. I wanted to do coaching, but I thought, okay, I'm not good enough. So I wrote down, I'm not good enough. And then I wrote the opposite. I am enough. I kept writing both of them down. And then eventually I just kept writing the I'm enough and I'm enough. And at first when I wrote it, I didn't believe it at all, okay, in terms of coaching. But over time, as you write and you reflect on it, your mindset changes. You start to believe. And then you go on to make action steps. My coach calls them inspired actions. Okay, I want to be a coach. What do I need to do? Well, first of all, I need to get this certification or maybe I just need to find a place. I need to work out how much money it's going to cost to rent a venue. Please talk to a few friends and see if they're interested. What would I want to talk about? Just get your pen, just let it pour out of you. And then it's really important to have somebody that holds you accountable. 
Okay, that's why coaching is such a growth industry. In short, you take action steps and don't make those action steps overwhelming. Give yourself three. And then when you've achieved those, make three more. Always have that person who's kind of just reminding you in a gentle way. You know, for me, I don't need somebody who's nagging me and breathing down my neck all the time. But it coach, coaches, I suppose, kind of nag you in a gentle way. <laughs> you don't much breathe down your neck because kind of just gently blow, you know. So got that person who's kind of got your back and sort of pushing you, but at your own pace. Everything happens at the right time. There's no lost opportunities or missed chances. If you missed a chance, it meant you weren't ready to take it. Everything happens at the right time. What I'm hearing is there are steps you can take to get ready and don't make it overwhelming, but start with some things that are manageable. Yeah. And I think what they talk about in psychology, I did a previous episode on this, but as you achieve one of your goals, celebrate it because that will help motivate you yes. to go on to the next step. Yeah. And that self-celebration is so important, right? But to acknowledge it, it's fine to big yourself up a bit and kind of like dance around and go, yeah, I did it, I did it. <laughs> These small things, just small daily things. I went to the gym today. I went for a walk today. You know, I wrote out a proposal today. These things need to be celebrated, definitely. What is the workshop that you're doing right now that really energizes you or your participants? I have to say that the retreat that I just did on limiting beliefs was, it was amazing. I really felt like I'm a real coach now, <laughs> you know, <laughs> really kind of just somehow was able to zone in on people's energy and on people's intentions and their desires. And it just flowed exactly the way I wanted it to flow. Because limiting beliefs is something that we all struggle with in certain areas and also by doing that for others it means I have to work on my own too right so that was really good for me on a personal level what would you say to someone who is facing fear for whatever is coming up for them about the thing they might like to achieve well face your fear and acknowledge it it's not that we are ever going to be without fear it's always going to be there and fear's message is to motivate you it's not to disable you or cripple you in any way okay there's something that I'm afraid of it means there's something that I need to do or maybe there's changed the way that I need to think so you're going to need to ask fear what is your message (laughs) what is your message in this situation what am I really afraid of happening And why am I afraid? Is it a legitimate fear or is it just a story that I'm making up in my head? Because, you know, especially when it comes to making big life decisions, because those are scary things and it's all right. But the scariest thing of all is just staying still, just staying where you are. And being unhappy, right? Yeah, exactly. But when you're just stuck, you're paralyzed for years and years, that's the scariest thing. To finish up today, is there anything else you'd like to add? Oh, no, we cannot end this without getting to that. Because when I asked you, what might we talk about today? You told me about how your husband delivered one of your kids in the car. And yeah, I need to know this story. He did. My daughter, thank goodness it wasn't my first child. For my second child, I went to a midwife clinic rather than like a big hospital. 
lovely lady. And I went in the night before and everything kind of slowed down. And she was like, oh, you might as well go home and relax. So I went home, did a bit of yoga, laid on the couch, you know, scared my husband and my sister were there. Every five seconds I kept going, oh, oh, it hurts. They'd just panic and jump up, you know. It was very entertaining for me until it was real. So in the evening or early evening, the contractions just suddenly started coming so much faster. And like it just went from like zero to a hundred. I said to my husband, we've got to go, we've got to go. So my sister stayed home with my son. We got in the car and we're driving at this rush hour. Right? It's 5.30, it's one of the busiest roads in Nagoya. And I said to him from the back seat, I said, I think the baby's coming. And he was like, oh, somebody, which in Japanese means good luck. And I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> good luck, what? <laughs> what does that mean? I think he was really scared. So he gets on the phone to the midwife and he said to her, you know, I think the baby's coming. And she said, okay, don't panic. Just park the car. The baby comes, just wrap them in a blanket, you know, drive to us. And that was it. He gets out of the car and I have to say he was very, very calm because he's usually the one that panics when the kids are sick. But, you know, he was very calm and he looked at me and he was like, okay, I'm going to have a look. And it push when I tell you to and of course in my mind I'm thinking you know men can be really squeamish about those things <laughs> what if he faints <laughs> or even worse what if he never wants to go down you know just you know never wants to do that again and then he looked and he could see her crowning we were in the car park of a convenience store a Lawson's convenience store he sees her crowning and he's like push one big push she came out and he caught her wow yeah. we looked at each other and we went oh, we did it and he was like yeah, we did it. <laughs> Put her on my chest. You know, she started kind of feeding straight away, wrapped us up, drove us to the midwife clinic. You know, we couldn't do the umbilical cord and everything. But honestly, it was the most amazing thing because, well, I mean, of course, birth is always amazing. But it was like this calm just settled on the car as we drove there. And we were just on a cloud. It was beautiful. That sense of peace and perfection. And midwife clinic runs out she's like oh I'm so sorry I was like oh it's fine she brought out a wheelchair and I was walking in honestly I was on such a you know high after that and then she did cut the umbilical cord and all those things and yeah everything was fine one of the best parts though was that you know in Japan you have to pay a certain amount of money you get some money back from the government but you know not the whole thing we got a huge discount (laughs) bonus money (laughs) it was like yes at the baby, yeah, she was healthy and happy. Now she's 10 and a half. Just out of curiosity, did you have to stay at the midwife clinic or did you get to go home? Oh, no, I stayed for about two days. And then, you know, because in Japan, you do tend to stay quite long. I, she, I think usually it's like a week or something, yeah, isn't it? Like five to seven days, five days for your mm-hmm. second, seven for your first. Well, she was like, you know, go home. That's, I mean, she's a midwife. It's different to a hospital. Right. So she was much more open-minded and kind of a hippie about it. Loved it. She wanted me to give birth at home. On reflection, that might have been best. <laughs> well, I mean, it makes for a great story and everything turned out wonderfully. So. Yeah, it did. It did. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. I'm happy that I remembered. Otherwise, I would have had to send you a message and be like, Avril, I need to know what happened. <laughs> So to end, is there anything else you'd like to add before we end this conversation? Anything I missed? If people want to connect, the Women's Empowerment Group is called the Nagoya Women's Empowerment Circle. And that's on Facebook? That's on Facebook. 
anyone in Japan would like to come to a workshop, the information will be there too. But I am planning in the future to do some online workshops as well so that people from other places can, can join. I think the last thing I'd like to add, my last little message is, you know, don't be afraid of change. You know, change is, is a good thing. Like I said before, it keeps us moving and evolving and developing and it makes life interesting. And so thank you for doing this, Damien. I love what you're doing with this podcast. I'm going to listen to all of them. I'm so happy that you took the time to chat with me today. I'll add all of this in the show notes. Yay, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you have any questions or comments, please let me know. You can reach me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or by filling out the contact form on the website. I'd especially like it if you would join the Changes Big and Small Facebook community. I share additional resources there, and I would love to support you in your change journey. And please share the episode with someone else. Every time I see even one more listen, that inspires me to keep creating the podcast. I appreciate you going on this journey with me. And to end, as always, remember that change begins with one small step. Have a great week.